Hey guys, how's it going? Everybody doing all right? Good to see you all. My name is Randall, one of the leaders here. We're going to jump right in. Um, yeah, it is significant. It's, it's important to, to think through like the time stamp, right, of these events, this date. Uh, maybe, maybe not this specific Sunday, but it's weird to think about how when we encounter unique and significant events, it creates, like, in our memory, this attachment. It kind, of, it kind of, like, cements itself. So, like, I can remember this time last year, I was out in the middle of the desert in Utah um, riding bicycles, and the st- I get this, like, group phone call from uh, Jesse and Matt in Austin. We had all the plans lined up, and I was going to come back and preach, and then all of a sudden we, we, we shifted and pivoted to like, hey, I don't think we should gather, right? So I like vividly have that experience etched into my mind. Things like remembering what um, September 11th was like. Like we remember the places and the times and the dates that we experienced those significant events. And it's important in a lot of ways. I can remember this. I can remember... Um, a lot of the details around the first time I read the Exodus story. Now, maybe unlike some of you who have maybe spent your whole time in church, I didn't. And so I read it as like an adult, like 23 years old. Um, And I remember just vividly like working through Genesis for the first time where it was really like infusing and forming itself into me, like God's story. And I just got to Exodus and you're reading all the crazy events that happen in Exodus. And I can so vividly remember like, man, it's crazy that God chose to tell his story through such a good story, right? And it's exciting and it's important. Um, But I don't know if you guys remember this because you get past the point that we're at today. Like I had Jesse read Exodus chapter 20 because we're not going to actually walk through all the, the, the details of the Ten Commandments today. I'm hoping that maybe this time next year we're actually lifting that out and, and maybe preaching through those specifically. So we're not going to dig into those today, but I, I remember reading and, and how exciting it was. Um, but then you get to um, chapter 21, right? And, and, and then you read, you read this. These are the laws you are to set before them. I don't know about you guys. Like, I don't have this in, in, in rooted in me. Like, I'm not an anti-authority people. Some of you are. Um, and, you know, whatever, work that out on your own. But you hear laws, and you like, the tires just come to a screeching halt, right? And then you read the next verse, and you're like, if you buy a Hebrew servant, and you're like, what is happening here? Like, we're going to just now go through... Rule after rule after rule. So chapter 21 often can feel like the edge of a cliff in the Exodus story because the tone and the nature of the story shifts. It moves away from highlighting all of these like narrative stories filled with a bunch of action and then you kind of just get stuck in the weeds of like laws and rules. Now they're for a purpose and for a reason. And so 21 can feel like you've just dropped off, again, the edge of the cliff, unless, unless you understand chapter 19. And chapter 19 is so significant because chapter 19 um, actually begins to act and, and, and become a bridge for us, right? From all of the exciting narrative 
to the importance and the significance of what God is doing through all of these laws. And so we need to put chapter 19 today in its proper context because the book of Exodus is really divided into two parts. So there's the Exodus part that we've been working through for the past 10 weeks. That's the rescue from Egypt part. That's the part with the weird and exciting stuff of like Hollywood movies. But then there's the law part. And the law part never makes it to celluloid. Like nobody tells the rest of the story. Like think about this. If you picked up the book of Exodus and you never read chapters 1 through 19 and you started in 21, you would have a very different understanding of the book of Exodus, right? Most of our understanding of the book of Exodus, if we're real honest, right, is, is probably like we've seen the movie the Ten Commandments, right? And so we think Moses, we think Charlton Heston, yeah, we think the guy that eats green people smoothies, right? And, and so we would have a very different reality if you only know that part of the story. And 19 becomes so important because 19 puts together those two like very kind of disparate feeling stories of the rest of like 21 on, and it connects it. Um, but, but nobody ever really makes a movie out of chapter 21 and on, and, and really even chapter 20. Like, they all stop, he gets the law, and then that's the end of the story. But we need to see this. There's these two sides to the story of Exodus. Then there's rescue, but then there's law. And Exodus 19, again, connects those two sides. So this chapter that we're going to look at today, chapter 19, is really one of those, like, crucial passages in the Scriptures because how we understand chapter 19. It really sets like the trajectory in how we read not only the rest of the story of Exodus, but really the entirety of the Old Testament. It, it establishes and forms our understanding of the law and the formation of the people of Israel and the calling of the people of Israel. And so I think this chapter in, in all of its depth teaches us three truths about God. And, and we learn this, we learn how God relates to humanity. And at this point in the story, it is a fallen, sinful, rebellious, rebellious humanity that God, from day one, intended to and is moving and working throughout redemptive history to redeem and restore a people for himself. So the first thing that we learn um, is, is this. But let me pray first, and we'll get to it. God, once again, we want to come before you and surrender um, our hearts to you, surrender our very souls. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that indwells us and forms us as a people that, that, that is present with us. We thank you for your living word, your son Jesus, who we surrender to as King and as Lord. And I pray that as we work through your gospel story today, found in the book of Exodus that clearly points us to the person of Jesus, I pray that we would surrender to the truths in it, that it would, that it would restore us as a people today, that we would live lives of obedience to your word as we worship you. In your name we pray, amen. So the first thing is this, God, and we have to see this in this story, God, by his grace, 
draws us into fellowship with him. So let's just pick it back up in verse 1 of chapter 19. So on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So notice here that, that Moses, right, he's still putting this time stamp. He's still dating things in terms of the Exodus event. So on the third moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. So he's still marking this story because they are to remember it, right? They built out this whole festival, this whole, this whole like basically like holiday of remembrance called Passover where they would engage actively in remembering and participating in the grace that God even showed them there as a people, as he delivered them and redeemed them out of Egypt and out of slavery. So he's still putting that time stamp, but here's the deal. The people have moved out of Egypt, and they're in a different location now. They're at Sinai. And Moses says it was on the third new moon after they left Egypt. And while that might seem arbitrary to us, we're going to see later on the significance and the importance of marking that by that new moon. So, verse 2 says, They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. So this whole sea of humanity that is now Israel, and remember, some Egyptians came with them. And we are meant, that should activate our understanding of that, that covenant that God made with Abraham. Like, like some of those Egyptians that left with Israel that are now encamped at the base of the mountain that are now about to receive the law are the first fruits of the promise that God made to Abraham that through him all the nations would be blessed and they would come into relationship with Yahweh. So we've got this whole throng, this whole sea of humanity now that's camped at the base of Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. So, so then Moses goes up the mountain to speak with God, right? God's going to meet him there and speak with him. Now, this is not Moses' first encounter with the living God, right? So, so here's what happens. God tells Moses something he is supposed to tell the people of Israel. And we see this in verse 4 and 6. So, so look at what Moses says first in verse 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So Moses is now speaking on behalf of God. He's shifted in some ways to be a mouthpiece, which is, which is what we could just say he's, he's now being a prophet. He's communicating a message from God to the people. So you yourselves have seen what I did. That's so important. Like that, that repeats itself all throughout the story. Like you've seen this, you've experienced it. You saw what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Listen, this is it. This is like the crux of chapter 19, the crux of which all of the rest of the story hangs on is, is really this right here. Remember, you've seen what I've done, right? How I brought you to myself and if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Like, just think about this 
for one moment. You are a people who your identity and existence for now over four centuries has been A, primarily, I am the possession of other people. I am owned by other people. And my identity is so firmly tied into that as an individual and then collectively as a people. We are a people who are owned by other people and we're tasked with hard labor and toil. And our identity is then wrapped up into like, we are a people who make bricks every day. You would not feel like a prized possession at that point. Like the other humans that owned you, that tasked you with hard, arduous labor, you do not feel like a prized possession to them, right? So look at what God is doing here. This is so important because this is the first thing God says to a newly formed people. He gives them a newly formed identity. You are my prized and treasured possession among all people's Like whatever else he's going to say, this is the first thing that he says to his people. The first thing he says is meant to remind Israel about the Exodus. Like never detach that from your story. How many times do we want to detach the hard stuff from our story, our burdens that weigh us down? And God's saying like, don't forget that. Keep that etched into who you are, but know that it's not your true identity, right? He tells them, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And of course they've seen it. Like we've seen Israel see it, right? Like we're, we're kind of like not voyeuristically, but we're like watching this happen as we work through the story. And we know that we've seen Israel see what God has done. So, so that's what chapters 4 through 17 are, are all about. God has rescued Israel through these amazing signs and wonders. God brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. He redeemed them out. He purchased them out. That's how God says it in Exodus 20, verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. But here in verse 4, there's a shift in the language, right? God says this, Hey, remember what I did to Egypt. That was significant. God executed his judgment and wrath against the Egyptians and all of their gods. And the purpose of which was to not just to be punitive, but to call Egypt out of the gods that they were worshiping, the false gods, and to call them into relationship with himself to prove that I am Yahweh, not just to the people of Israel, but to Egypt too. So remember what I did to Egypt. And then he says, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. That is so incredibly significant there. He doesn't doesn't mention the deliverance this time, but he's describing that event. But this time he gives this like eagle metaphor, right? And then he names the destination. Look at the metaphor. First he says, I bore you on eagle's wings. Or the NIV says, I carried you on eagle's wings. So this image... This imagery is, is found throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, and we can, we can sort of imagine how it goes. Like, imagine an eagle flying, right? Like, I don't know about you, but, like, I love birds of prey. Like, they're so, like, impressive. And, and so to see, like, an eagle flying 
I, it always kind of sends chills down my bones, right? And, and, and imagine then that that eagle is holding you in a good way. That eagle is carrying you. I imagine it's probably much like this, right? Um, and it's, you just feel safe in the arms of Turk, right? The eagle is bringing you away from trouble, right? That is Yahweh's relationship to Israel. That is what he is doing in Exodus. Is that picture just going to distract you like it's going to distract me the whole time? I don't know if we should go back or go forward, but man, those two guys really loved each other, by the way. So, um, and, and, and so here's the thing. The, the, the thing that we see first is that God tells Israel here in Exodus 19, which I believe like is supposed to get our attention. We're supposed to like go like, oh, what's happening here? This is a metaphor that's meant to stop you, and it's meant to be something like kind of hard to assume, like Yahweh is like an eagle who carries you, right? Um, here's what we're meant to see. The message here is grace, right? God is lifting you up and moving you gracefully from one destination to the other. And is it not true that every step of the way in this story, it was completely impossible for Israel to do any of this on their own? right? There, there was no functionality that they could bring to the story. Like, they didn't produce the Nile turning into blood. They didn't bring a bunch of frogs and release them over Egypt. Like, this is grace. This is, the, this is God doing for them what they could never do for themselves. So, so why does God carry Israel on, on the wings of an eagle? Because he loves Israel. Why? Because he does because Moses actually spends a lot of time on this topic. You can find him like kind of, kind of unpacking all of this in Deuteronomy 7 through 9. And it all comes back to God's grace for his creation. It's the same reason God called Abraham from Ur, right, of the Chaldeans. It's the same reason God told Adam that there was still hope back in Genesis chapter 3. This is the grace of God. The reason that there is hope for Adam, the reason that there is hope for Abraham, the reason that there's hope for Israel, the reason that there's hope for you and I is because of God's grace, this just, absolute, undeserved love that God has for his image bearers. And it's not because any of you can perform your way into it. None of you can deserve your way into it. None of you can earn your way into the love of God. It's not because anybody or any of you were good enough. You don't sit here today because of that. You sit here today because of the grace of God. God did what he did to Egypt for Israel because of his grace. And that's the thing that God says to Israel in Exodus chapter 19. Remember Egypt, I am your eagle. Remember this is all grace. And then second, he says, I brought you. This is the destination. This is so significant. I brought you to myself. Remember, like God made a promise to Abraham that he would have a place, he would have a destination for them, and that destination we most commonly call the land of promise or the promised land, but here we have God saying the ultimate destination that I freed you and redeemed you for is not about a, like a geographical place. It's not about like a, you know, like a piece of like desert. I brought you to myself. 
And this is important because it connects the dots to something that we saw earlier in the story. The last time we were at Mount Sinai, it was way back in chapter 3. I think Matt walked us through this. Sinai is the place where God spoke with Moses through the burning bush. In chapter 3, it was called Mount Horeb, but it's the same place, same place, same mountain. God told Moses back in chapter 3, he said, but I will be with you and and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain, right? So, so God said back then, hey, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to free the people. I'm going to bring you right back here. But more than I'm bringing you to a mountain, I'm bringing you to me, right? And now in Exodus 19, Moses and the people are there. They're at the place that God told Moses they would bring them. They're out of Egypt. They're at the mountain. And the purpose of which is not that the mountain is somehow going to provide everything that they need to live and breathe and eat. The purpose that they're at the mountain is worship. They're there to worship. God wants Israel to be his people, a people who dwell in his presence, in fellowship with him. And this clarifies something for us important about God's salvation. It's that God never only rescues us from something. We've been saying this throughout this whole story. He always rescues his people to something, right? Now listen, I could come up with a long list of things that we are to do as a people, right? Like, listen, top of which for me is like we need to be a people that understand that we are uniquely sent to engage culture and to engage people and for the mission of Jesus, right? Like, that is something we are to do. This is a little, like, maybe fracturing for us here because I believe in that to the very core of myself and who I am, but I don't know that that's what God saved us for. Like, God saved us primarily and brought him or brought us to himself. Like that's the significance, right? God saved us from, but he saved us to. And he saved us to be a people that would worship him, that would be secure and safe and flourish in his presence. And then out of that, yeah, there's a long list of things that we are to do, primarily which of mine is going to be, I'm going to engage with my neighbors and love them and tell them about Jesus and invite them to experience hospitality and generosity in the kingdom, and I believe that that is one of the primary things we are to do as a people, but I believe that who we are to be as a people, because that's what God's doing here. More than he's giving the, the people a list of things to do, he's giving them a people to be, and the people that he's giving them to be is a people that would worship him, right? So, so God's salvation is a salvation by grace and by him and to him, And listen, if you don't want that, like if you want something else out of this deal, if you want something else out of the salvation that God offers to you, then maybe you don't actually want his salvation. Because if you don't want his presence, if you don't want to be his people, then you just want something else, right? So this is one of those critical questions that we have to ask ourselves, really at the deepest core of who we are. And here it is. Do we, when it comes to how we live, Do we only want God to forgive us or do we want the life with God that forgiveness gives? Like, do you just simply want to be forgiven by God or do you actually want to be like encompassed with the life of Jesus? 
right, and follow Him and, and the life that comes with that forgiveness? Do you only want Jesus to let you off the hook for your sin, or do you want to be on the hook with Jesus and say like that, like following Jesus, worshiping Jesus, like, like being encompassed by the life of Jesus, our Savior, like that's what he has saved us for. Because the good news of God's gospel is that he brings us to himself. Let's see how Peter describes it in, in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Did you hear it there? Like he brings us to God. Like that's the point. Christ suffered for both the righteous and the unrighteous. There's not a category of image bearer that Jesus did not suffer for, purpose of which is that we would be brought to God, that we would be restored back to a right relationship with God. That's so significant. So God, by His grace, draws us into fellowship with Him, the triune God who exists in perfect relationship with himself. God doesn't need anything else to experience perfection other than the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Perfect harmony, perfect shalom, perfect relationship existing there, but he invites us and gives us a place at the table to experience that perfect shalom. That's, that's the first thing that we, that we learn. Second thing is this, God intends to have for himself a people which is significant, but a people who would do what Adam failed to do, right? So we see this in verse 5 and 6 again, and, and this is really, once again, this is such the heart of the passage, which means like we have to read the rest of the passage in light of what God says here in verses 5 and 6, and he says two things, like he puts two things over the people. There's a calling and there's a condition, right? So there is who God calls Israel to be, and then there's the condition by which Israel becomes that thing. Look at verse 5 and 6 again. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So first look at the calling. Israel shall be Yahweh's or God's treasured possession among all peoples. That's the main calling here in these two verses, right? Verse 6 just explains more of what that means, right? And so when we read those words, treasured possession, we kind of have an idea of what that is, right? There's something like valuable. Um, if Israel is God's treasured possession, it means that God like, really loves them. Like that's kind of easy enough for us to see there that the whole earth is God's, that he made everything and out of everything he uniquely prizes or values Israel, so we understand that in this phrase, treasured possession, there's also like another layer there to that though that I kind of want us to see. So the, the phrase treasured possession, it's not used a ton in the Old Testament. And in most cases though, when it's used, it refers to Israel. But what's fascinating is that when you track down like how this word is used in, in other writings from this time period, it carries this idea of sonship or, or like servant, okay? So the treasured possession was a way to, to talk about someone's preferred servant or son, right? So like, who's your favorite? Like, I have a favorite kid. I look at them, they're like, what? They just went ding, 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 right? Um, we all do, right? And so, so this is that. This is God saying, like, I have, a, I have a favored son here. I have a favorite kid here, right? Which is exactly 
how the word is used in Malachi 3.17. L- listen to this. This is, this is Yahweh talking about Israel. Malachi 3.17, God says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Right? So in Malachi 3.17, the treasured possession is, is this parallel to someone's son who serves them, their favorite son, their preferred son. So Israel being Yahweh's treasured possession carries the idea of Israel being Yahweh's preferred or favorite son, which is something we've seen before. Back in Exodus 4.22, remember God says, Israel is my firstborn son. And then he tells Pharaoh in Exodus 4.23, let my son go that he may serve me. And then later on in the story, in the Bible, in, in Hosea 11.1, 1, uh, about the Exodus, God says, out of Egypt I called my son. So we understand from other places in the Bible that, that God thinks of Israel as his son. But this is really important um, for Exodus 19.5 here because we see that this is, this is Israel's main calling, right? More than anything else, Israel is to be like God's son, his treasured possession, which is explained in verse 6, like to be this, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, which is super fascinating. Like look at the combination of that phrase there, a kingdom of priests. So on the one hand, you have a kingdom as in dominion or rule. And on the other hand, you have this priesthood, which is those that have a special relation to God those who are consecrated to serve God and image bearers. So Israel is to be a people whose dominion and rule is expressed through their priesthood. They rule by their relation and service to God. Collectively, they are meant to be a king-priest nation. Does that make sense? That's super significant because it gives them a calling, it gives them an identity. Now, remember back to God's calling on Adam in Genesis, right? We have to put this all kind of framed up in the whole story. God commissioned Adam to have what? To have dominion over all of creation, which is kingship and kingdom language. And then when God explained to Adam what, it, what that means, he told Adam to work and to keep the garden, which are the exact words used to describe the duties of priests in the Old Testament, to work and to keep. So, so most scholars agree that God intended Adam to be a sort of king-priest. So Adam, as God's first man, who was considered to be like God's son, God called him to image and represent God as a king-priest one that has a job to do, that has a special consecrated relationship to God to serve him. And now God's calling on Israel is effectively the same. Israel is also considered God's son, as we've seen, and God calls them to serve him as a kingdom of priests. So what we need to know in Exodus 19 is that God's calling on Israel is like God's calling on Adam. God intends to have for himself a people who do what Adam failed to do. Because what we know from the story is Adam failed miserably at his calling. And we know that, right? He didn't live up to the calling. So the question is, how does Israel do? How do they do, right? Well, let's keep looking at that, right? There is then the condition in verse 5 that kind of helps us in order for Israel to be what God has called them to be, they have to meet this condition. They have to obey God's voice and keep his covenant. 
So the question is in verse 5, what covenant is God talking about here? What covenant must Israel keep? So the last time the word covenant was used, back in chapter 2, verse 24, it is in reference to the covenant that God made with Abraham. In fact, up to this point, when it comes to God and the word covenant, it's only used in reference to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the covenant he made with them. So the next time we see the word covenant in Exodus 24, 8, and that's when Moses reads the book of the covenant. Um, And in that case, covenant is referring to the law, right? So God is on the precipice, like as the people are encamped at the base of this mountain, they are on the very verge of, with their tiptoes hanging over, a new covenant, a covenant of law that God is going to form with his people. Now, I do not believe that that covenant abolishes the covenant that he made in Eden and the covenant that he made with Noah and the covenant that he made with Abraham. I believe that there's continuity through those covenants. They're building on each other until we get like to the covenant that God enacts through Jesus. And so he's talking about this Abrahamic covenant, um, but then he refers to um, also like we're on the precipice of this new covenant, but right now we're talking about the covenant with Abraham, right? And so I believe um, that this matters because the nature of God's covenant with Abraham was what? What was the condition? It was one of faith. How does Abraham keep the covenant God made with him? By believing God, right? Genesis 15, 7 says, you know, basically that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. But now, though, how is that faith expressed? It's expressed through obedience. Abraham obeyed the voice of God in Genesis chapter 22. And those words used about Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, he obeyed the voice of God. Those are the exact same Hebrew words that are now used in Exodus 19.5. They are, what is required of Israel is the same thing that was required of Abraham in that covenant, in that condition. So the way Israel keeps this covenant now, how do they keep this covenant? They keep this covenant by believing God in the same way that Abraham or Abraham believed God. So the condition for Israel to be what God has called them to be is faith. It's simple faith. For Israel to be God's son, to be a kingdom of priests, they just have to trust him. Israel can fulfill their calling by faith, but faith, unfortunately for them, as we'll see, is the very thing they lack. Look at verse 11. God says that on the third day, he is going to come down on the mountain. His presence is going to be on the mountain, and the people have to be careful. And then verse 12 says that the people should not go up into the mountain or even touch the edge of the mountain. But then in verse 13, God says, when the trumpet sounds a long blast, then they shall come up to the mountain, right? So, so notice verse 12 again. It said that they shall not go up to the mountain. And then in verse 13, it says that they shall come up to the mountain. And then in verse 12, it says they should come into the mountain. And verse 13, it says they shall come to the mountain, so that's all kind of confusing. Like, what's happening here? Is God being a little, like, bipolar? Like, what, do or don't? Or what's happening, right? Here's the thing. In the Hebrew, it's the exact same word. The reason it gets translated differently in English is because we're not sure how to make sense of this, right? How does God say to not do something, and then he says to do it? Well, it's kind of like when he told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and then said, don't sacrifice Isaac, right? Which also happened on the mountain, by the way. So see the point here is whether Israel obeys God's voice 
Israel must not go up to the mountain, but when they hear the trumpet, then they go up to the mountain. That's what God says. This is about whether they can listen to God. Can Israel listen to God and obey God's voice? The manna story, really, that we looked at was that last week. I mean, I think that has already answered that for us, right? Can Israel prove that they can live faithful lives of obedience where they hear God's voice and obey him? No. Like, they've failed miserably already at that, right? Look what happens. Verse 16 then says, it's, it's the morning of the third day, right? Now, this is going to get a little complicated here because math. Um, that's when God said he's coming, right? Um, and this may be new math here. This sounds like new math to me. Just pay attention. That's when God said he's coming, and we're told the timing here because it matters, right? So back in verse 1, we read that when Israel gets to Sinai, it's the third moon after they left Egypt, which none of you know what that means, right? Neither do I, but other people do. Scholars say this would have been the 48th day after the Passover. So the third day here in verse 16 makes this the 50th day after Passover. And it's the 50th day after Passover is called, anybody know what that's called today? It's called Pentecost, right? So, so this is happening on what is now Pentecost, right? And verse 16 says, on the morning of the third day, which pay attention to this, where, where thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. So, so now, like, what are the people supposed to do when they hear the trumpet? They are supposed to go up to the mountain. But look at verse 16, the trumpet blasts, and all the people in the camp do what? They get on their boots and start marching up the mountain? No, they, they, they tremble, right? And, and Moses is trying to help. He gets the people out of the camp. He brings them to the foot of the mountain, but the mountain is terrifying. Look at that scene. It's terrifying. It, it, the mountain is on fire. The mountain is Mount Doom, okay? Like the burning bush in Exodus 3, and like the pillar of fire that God has been leading the people, God has led Israel from fire by fire to fire, right? Which is the symbol of his presence. And look at verse 19. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. Again, what are the people supposed to do when they hear the trumpet? They're supposed to go up to the mountain, but they don't listen. So Moses speaks and God answers him. And then God calls him to go to the top of the mountain and people stand back and the people are now prohibited from the mountain. And rather than the people being a kingdom of priests, God establishes a priesthood among the people. And over in chapter 20, verse 18, like we kind of get a little bit more commentary on what, what, what's happening here. Moses says in, in verse 18 of chapter 20, Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking and the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. So they're doing the exact opposite. They didn't listen. They didn't hear. They are already failing in this, right? They are already now a people who just like Adam are failing to do what God has called them to do. Like it's an instantaneous failure. We don't want to hear God's voice again. It's terrifying. The people did not go up to the mountain themselves. They, they, don't, they don't express faith. And because they didn't have faith, they couldn't be who God called them to be. They needed Moses now to mediate for them. God intends to have for himself a people who failed to do what Adam did, but Israel 
is not that people in this moment, or at least in Exodus 19, they're not that people yet. We're going to get there. Last thing is this. God indeed will have for himself that people. It's the last thing we'll look at. Adam fails to be who God called him to be. Israel as a people, like almost instantly. Like they're just like a newly formed nation. They are now a newly formed people who the, that, that, that past, while it is always supposed to be attached to who they are, no longer forms their identity. God just said, you are my treasured and prized possession and here's who I want you to be. And all you have to do is listen and do what I say. And Israel has almost already instantly failed to be the people who God called them to be. But the purpose of this is still here, right? God will have for himself a treasured possession. God will have a kingdom of priests. And do you know how God does this? How does God accomplish this? Well, it's a little weird because he accomplishes it through Christmas, right? It starts there. God will have a people for his own possession by first sending a person of his own possession. And that person is Jesus. And when Jesus came and he walked in the journey of Israel, like you are supposed to see Jesus' story through that lens. And really you recognize that, that the Exodus story and Israel's story is Jesus' story. He was spoken of by the prophets of Israel, called out of Egypt like Israel, passing through the sea like Israel, tempted in the wilderness like Israel, except that in every step of his journey, with every heartbeat and every breath, Jesus believed God the Father. Jesus endured in faith. The Spirit rested upon him. The law was written in his heart, and Jesus obeyed and listened to the voice of God. Jesus was like Israel, but Jesus is the true and better Israel. Jesus is the Father's real treasure But he is the beloved son who came to earth like Adam, but he came as a baby in a manger and he grew up. And as he grew, he imaged and represented God in the ultimate sense. And like Adam, Jesus is also a king, but he is a king who has a kingdom that is not of this world. He is a king who bends to wash the feet of his subjects. And he doesn't stop there. He is a king who dies for his people. Jesus is a king who takes upon himself the sins of his people. He is a substitute for them. Jesus is a king who is also a priest. As a king, he wages war against sin and death and defeats them both. And in his victory, when he takes his seat on the throne, he is seated there as a priest who now intercedes for you. Right now, that's crazy. Jesus is interceding for you, on behalf of you, as he sits at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is the king priest who reigns in mercy and grace. He is the king priest who has the power to save the uttermost sinner, those who draw near to God through him. Jesus is like Adam, but Jesus is better than Adam. And as the better Adam, Jesus creates in himself a new humanity, a new people under a new covenant. And in this new covenant, like with Jesus, God puts his spirit within his people and writes his law on their hearts, which he did in Acts chapter 2. On what day, by the way? 
when did Jesus send his spirit to indwell his people and form a new humanity? What day was it? Pentecost. So what God intended for first for a person, Adam, and then a people, Israel, he has now realized in a person, Jesus, and a people, his church. Like, listen, you guys, this is so significant. I'm almost done. Like, I think this, I think we wander around, right, as a people, and, and it feels rootless for us, right? We're trying to figure out who we are. Some of us answer that question by we say, like, we are Americans first, right? Some of us put any other type of identity first before that but we need to understand that our identity as a people, as we sit here today, is not formed in any of that. It's formed in this story. This story attaches us as the church to the people that God is looking to today to say, would you be a people that would listen to my voice and be obedient to, to us? Like this story of Exodus, the story of the formation of Israel as a people, this is where we are formed as a people, as his church. This is what gives us a rooted story, a rooted identity. This is who we are. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. And God saved us and brought us to himself. Listen how the Apostle Peter describes the church in 1 Peter 2.9, which, by the way, I'm just going to take a note. I promise I'm going to be done here, guys. Thanks for hanging with this. So stoked. We're going to get done with this. We're going we're gonna to do Easter, right? We've got Easter coming up. It's like three Sundays away. We were kind of robbed of Easter. We were joking earlier, like, has Jesus just been waiting to rise again, <laughs> right? So we get Easter, but then after that, we're going to go to Mark. We're going to go through the entirety of the gospel of Mark, and you're going to see the threads and the echoes of Exodus in Mark. And then we're going to get to First Peter in the fall, and you're going to see the, exo the echoes of Exodus all throughout First Peter. So like we purposefully, I don't know how purf purposely well we're going to do it, but we purposefully chose Exodus and Mark and Peter so that we would get our identity down. Who are we as a people? This is who we are as a people. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people. Listen, before you are anything else today, get this down. You are his own treasured possession. Like, do you see that? Like, that's who you are. That's us. That's the church we are the people of Jesus. We are a people brought into fellowship with God by faith, created to be a new humanity in Jesus. We are forgiven by the cross of Jesus and filled with the Spirit of the living God to walk in the way of Jesus. That is what Exodus 19 is about. It's about you today, the church, being formed through the life of Jesus. And I don't know what you do with that other than to worship him how can we not adore our true and better king and priest jesus this whole thing is grace and as we prepare to respond i want to invite you to the table this morning to go to the table in grace and give him thanks for what he has accomplished for you on your behalf, how he has now given you 
your eternal identity. So if you're in here this morning and you trust in Jesus, and if you are united to him by faith, if you adore and worship King Jesus, we invite you to eat and drink with us, right? In the long shadow of this Exodus story, we get to go to the table and we get to thank God for the Passover that he gives us as a people. And then we get to look forward as we eat and drink today to the day where we will be a people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation, not, not spread out through the whole world, but at the table with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we'll get to feast with our good King, with all of humanity. So we invite you today to eat and drink and worship 